Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the voice of David Odejai. This is Half Court Hustle, the basketball podcast dedicated to giving you top tier news and analysis. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Half Court Hustle. Now, I've taken a little bit more time than usual to get this episode to you. I've been following a two-weekly format so far, so I'm a little bit behind schedule, but I wanted to take my time with this one. I wanted to give the topic a lot of care and attention because it is one that is quite close to my heart. So today we're going to be talking about the seven seconds or less Phoenix Suns, um, the run and gun team that was led by Mike D'Antoni and MVP point guard Steve Nash back in the mid to late 2000s. Now, the reason that this team was one of my favorites is, first of all, they had my favorite player of all time, Amare Stoudemire. Like, I used to idolize that guy as I was growing up and I wanted to be my game to be just like his. Now, unfortunately, I didn't have, you know, the close to seven foot height or the superstar athleticism or even the kind of skill or coordination to have my game anywhere close to Amare's, but I idolized him nonetheless. I loved the Phoenix Suns as uh, I was growing up because they were so much fun to watch. They would run up and down the open floor, score a whole bunch of points and would just torch their opposition. And the strange thing about the Suns is that even though year on year, they were usually one of the best, if not the best regular season teams, they still felt like an underdog because the only thing analysts were saying, the only thing pundits were saying was that this team could not win with this style of play. So they felt like an underdog, even though they were winning all of these games. The other thing about the Suns is that they're in, in terms of the history of basketball in the last couple of decades, they were a really important team. Uh, Mike D'Antoni in Phoenix uh, led the way with a super high octane, high pace style of play that in many ways was the predecessor to the current Golden State Warriors team with their, you know, high volume of three point shooting and, you know, pace and space approach to basketball. So this week we're going to be taking a deep dive into uh, Mike D'Antoni's Phoenix Suns and, well, what really happened to them towards the end of last decade? So let's start with the protagonists. Who are the heroes in this story? Uh, Mike D'Antoni was, uh, he played a couple of years in the NBA, didn't have a very notable career, but then left America to go and play basketball in Italy uh, for Milan and became a basketball legend out there. He took the much derided uh, small ball, uh, meaning, you know, using uh, much shorter players who are a lot faster than traditional centers and, and, and power forwards to play at a very high pace, fast style of play. And the reason I say that style of play was often derided was that, you know, it, you know back in the 90s, if you look at the, the Denver Nuggets that were led by um, Paul Westhead, 
that Denver Nuggets team had the best offense in the league, but they were actually giving up 130 points per game. So despite being very entertaining, they lost a hell of a lot of games. And it was the same with the Golden State Warriors way before the Steve Kerr era, back in the 2000s, when they were led by Don Nelson. Those teams led by Baron Davis and Steven Jackson. Again, a ton of fun to watch, but they didn't really amount to a whole lot. But, you know, here is Mike, Mike D'Antoni, uh, fresh from Italy, coming back to the United States, taking this Phoenix team and saying, you know, forget the detractors and forget the naysayers. This is the style of basketball that I believe in. And at the helm of Mike D'Antoni's offense was Steve Nash, the undersized and often overlooked all-star point guard who became a superstar when he joined D'Antoni's team. He would go on to win back-to-back MVPs and was a member of what is known as the 50-40-90 club. Or in other words, players who for an entire season average 50% uh, field goal percentage, uh, 40% from the three-point line, and 90% from the free throw line. Like that is the gold standard of shooting in the NBA. In addition to Nash, the guy that I've already touched on, Amare Stoudemire, uh, rookie of the year, athletic, flashy dunker, really skilled finisher around the basket, but also had an effective mid-range game as well. So he was a deadly pick and roll threat alongside Nash. And, you know, this guy has some of my favorite highlights of all time. Like if you want to see what, in my opinion, is the best poster dunk in all time, go on YouTube and look up Amare Stoudemire dunking on Anthony Tolliver. Incredible highlight. And, and, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, I really enjoyed watching this Phoenix Suns team. Last but not least, part of that big three trio was uh, Sean Marion, also known as the Matrix. This guy was a Swiss knife of a, of a player, could do everything, hit the three, played really good defense, rebounded the ball, just a, a really sort of high energy, uh, high level of hustle type of player. Most known for having the ugliest jump shot, probably the ugliest jump shot in NBA history. Watching that guy shoot a three was painful, but the ball some, you know, pretty much managed to find its way into the basket more often than not. So those are the lead characters in this story. But before we get into uh, Mike D'Antoni and his sons, Phoenix in the years before Steve Nash arrived, they were stuck in mediocrity. Now, that's not to say that they lacked star talent. In the years before Steve Nash, they were led by uh, Jason Kidd and Stefan Marbury, both of whom were all-star guards in their own right. In the years before the Seven Seconds or Less era, the Suns had limited success, but for the most part, they were plagued with injury and mediocrity. Jason Kidd led the Suns to the playoffs a number of times, but he was traded mid-season for Stefan Marbury. After a troubled season in which Jason Kidd would have a domestic abuse incident go public. Marbury led the team to an OK 44 wins um, in the 2003 season, and they would go on to lose in the playoffs to the eventual champion San Antonio Spurs. 
that's going to become a little bit of a pattern as this story goes on. But for now, the Suns would go on to draft future superstar Amare Stoudemire, who'd become the first player to leave his high school, go straight to the NBA and win Rookie of the Year. Things went downhill the following season as the Suns posted a miserable 29-win season in 2004. But that said, with Amare Stoudemire, the Suns found themselves with a lot of young talent. Uh, Sean Marion, who'd been drafted a few years earlier, Stoudemire himself. Leandro Barbosa, nicknamed the Brazilian Blur because he was one of the fastest players in the league. And Joe Johnson, talented scorer, one of the best three-point shooters in the league at the time. So the Suns found themselves with a treasure trove of young talent, but they just didn't have the veteran leadership needed to put them over the top. this time, the end of the 2004 season, a certain Canadian point guard found himself in a contractual dispute with the Dallas Mavericks. So Steve Nash had just played the best season of his career with Dallas, uh, earning his uh, first All-Star appearance. But he wanted more money than Dallas were willing to give to him. Uh, And at that time, the Mavericks wanted to build around Dirk Nowitzki. So Steve Nash was available and on the market and D'Antoni and the Suns were more than happy to pick up Nash, who would return to the Suns, the team that drafted him back in uh, 1999. So that signing would launch one of the most fun high-octane offences of that entire decade and was really a predecessor, like a precursor to today's style of play where you know people run up and down the floor jack up three pointers and are looking to push the ball as fast as possible that year's Suns team in 2005 would go on to win a league best 62 games so that turnaround from winning only 29 games in 2004 to 62 games in 2005 was at that time one of the greatest single season turnarounds in NBA history. And when you look at the makeup of this team, it's easy to see why they were able to tear up the league. In Steve Nash and Amare Stoudemire, the Suns had the best pick and roll duo in the entire NBA. Nash had super smooth handles and he had... The guy just seemed to have eyes in the back of his head. He could see passing lanes where nobody else could see them. And he was so in tune with his teammates that he was just able to know instinctively where somebody was going to be open for a shot. And despite the fact that he really had below average, mediocre athleticism, he was just able, he was so crafty that he was just able to dribble his way to the hoop and find a cutting Amare Stoudemire to the basket or a Joe Johnson open in the corner. Uh, Speaking of Joe Johnson, in addition to Nash and Stoudemire, the Phoenix had two of the best shooters in the league uh, in the form of Joe Johnson, a super talented scorer who would go on to earn the nickname Iso Joe and have like a whole bunch of game-winning three-point shots in his career. And Quentin Richardson, who was a hyper-athletic sharpshooter. And both of these guys were absolute snipers from three. Add to that Sean Marion, who we've covered earlier. And you have the recipe for offensive domination. 
So at the center of all of this was Mike D'Antoni's offensive philosophy. His whole idea was based on the notion that if you're a team trying to score, the best chance of you doing this is before the shot clock hits 17 seconds. So you want to get the ball up and attack the basket before the defense can get settled. So with that, the seven seconds or less Suns were born. Phoenix would hit their opponents with a spread pick and roll where Steve Nash would find Amare Stoudemire streaking to the hoop for a devastating dunk or Stoudemire would pop out and hit a mid-range shot. If that wasn't available, Nash could just surgically probe the defense, dribble along the baseline and hit either Joe Johnson or Quentin Richardson for an open three in the corner. And this was really effective. Phoenix absolutely torched their opposition scoring 110 points per game, which was the best in the entire league. And yeah, it's true. Defense was a little bit of an afterthought. In fact, uh, not only did Phoenix have the best offense in the league, they also had the single worst defense in the league as well. But the Suns were winning and they were having fun doing it. And the rest of the league would start to take notice of D'Antoni's particular style of play. Having a high energy, shoot first, ask questions later, forget playing defense style of play, it wasn't invented by D'Antoni and the Suns. It wasn't a completely new idea. But in the early 2000s, this style of play had kind of fallen out of favor because uh, the juggernauts of the time, when you look at San Antonio and its hard-nosed defense behind uh, David Robinson and Tim Duncan, when you look at you know Phil Jackson and uh, the LA Lakers who you know were playing a sort of slow it down grind you to powder style uh, type of style uh, you know with uh, uh, Shaquille O'Neal at center with the dominant teams of the age it became really popular to say that having a high paced jump shooting focused team could not win a championship live by the jump shot, die by the jump shot, as as Charles Barkley would say quite a lot. And sure, there had been some notable failures. You know, I I talked about the the Denver Nuggets in the 90s who let in a comical 130 points per game. Sure, they scored a lot, but they, they lost a lot of games as well. But what people tend to forget is that in the sort of 80s with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson, the Showtime Lakers played a very similar style of play where they would play at a really fast pace led by Magic Johnson as his amazing uh, passing ability. I guess the difference there is that the Showtime Lakers had defensive stoppers like Kareem himself or, or Kurt Rambis. So yeah, D'Antoni definitely had his detractors and many analysts were saying, can this Suns team really go on to win a championship? So could D'Antoni prove his say- naysayers wrong? Could he go on and win it all with his style of play? The short answer is no. The thing about basketball and life in general is that even the best laid plans can be scuppered by circumstance. So anyway, after winning 62 games in the 2005 season, the best uh, regular season performance for the Phoenix Suns since the Charles Barkley era in the 90s, the Phoenix Suns will make it all the way to the Western Conference Finals before falling to the eventual champions in the San Antonio Spurs. 
That's not the last time that the Spurs will appear in this story. But for now, despite failing to make it to the finals, Nash and Stoudemire had propelled themselves to stardom and D'Antoni had proved that his system could dominate in the regular season and at least make a little bit of noise in the playoffs. So the promise was definitely there and the Suns were on the map. Going into the 05-06 season though, the Phoenix Suns found themselves in a bit of a tough position. Joe Johnson and Quentin Richardson, their specialist three-point marksmen, didn't return to the roster. In addition, Amare Stoudemire suffered a microfracture in his knee and had to go under the knife for surgery. This would leave him on the bench for pretty much all of the season. Now, at this point, Stoudemire had developed into a 26-point-per-game scorer. And that, if you're the Phoenix Suns, that's a very big hole to feel on the offensive side of the ball. Not only did D'Antoni find himself without his key players, but he was also tasked with the job of incorporating a lot of fresh faces into the mix. That year, the Suns added Rajah Bell, who was a hard-nosed defender who could also hit three-pointers. They also added Boris Diar, who was a talented uh, centre from France, who was a skilled playmaker, you know, a big man who could pass the ball and could also play multiple positions. In addition to this, they'd also add Tim Thomas, who was pretty much an unknown quantity, but would turn out to be an unlikely hero later down the line. Despite this upheaval, the Suns grinded their way through this season and racked up a very respectable 54 wins and a third seed in the playoffs. In the first round, the Suns would find themselves matched up against the LA Lakers. Now, at this point in 2006, the glory of the Lakers' three-peat at the start of the decade had begun to wane a little bit. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal had left the Lakers to go and join uh, Dwayne Wade and the Miami Heat. And the Lakers roster was depleted, absolutely depleted. And the only thing propping them up was the continued brilliance of one Kobe Bryant. So Phoenix, heavily favoured going into the series, started well, edging out the Lakers for a game one victory. Things took a turn for the worse as the Suns would go on to lose the next two games. Fast forward to game four of the series in the Staples Center in LA and D'Antoni's Phoenix Suns would become victims of one of Kobe Bryant's most legendary moments. So game four, in the dying seconds of regulation, the Phoenix Suns are up by two one of the Suns attempts to inbound the ball. So what they are trying to do at this point is get the ball in Steve Nash's hands. And remember, Steve Nash is a 90% free throw shooter. If you manage to get the ball into his hands, the Lakers have to foul him because there are only a few seconds left on the clock and the Suns are up by two. Nash goes to the line, sinks his free throws. The game is over. Easy. What happens instead is they manage to get Steve Nash the ball but he is swarmed by LA defenders, loses the ball. 
With about six seconds left on the clock, Kobe takes the ball, streaks by, steps around Raja Bell and hits a crazy circus layup in order to force the game to overtime. And the Staples Center is going wild. So overtime comes around and the Phoenix Suns are this time up by one. But Nash gets tied up by Luke Walton and has to go up against the six foot seven Walton in order to win a jump ball. Nash, of course, loses the jump ball and the ball lands in none other than Kobe Bryant's hands with less than four seconds on the clock. Now, every single Lakers fan in the world knows what happens next. Kobe dribbles the ball down the lane, pulls up at the elbow, and he's met by Boris Diaw and Rajar Bell. So Kobe gets double teamed, but this isn't going to phase him. He raises up and he nails a two-pointer. It's like he didn't even see who was in front of him. The staple center goes crazy. The game is over. And the Suns find themselves down three games to one and on the verge of a very embarrassing first round exit, having now lost three games in a row to the LA Lakers. Now, being down three to one in a playoff series is no joke. At that point, in the entire history of the league, there had only been seven occasions where a team had come back from a three to one deficit. So this would be a fight back of epic proportions. Now, if you want to know the full detail of this series and the rest of the 2006 season, I would definitely recommend picking up uh, Seven Seconds or Less, which is a book written by Jack McCollum, where he went and spent an entire season covering the Phoenix Suns from their locker room, spending time with the staff, eating dinner with the players. It's a really good read and I would recommend it. Back to the story. So... The Suns would manage to win game five and they would find themselves back in the Staples Center for game six, now down 3-2 at this point, facing another win or go home situation. So after Kobe Bryant makes a layup, the Suns are down 102 to 105 with less than 30 seconds to go and the season on the line. They desperately needed a three-pointer. There just wasn't enough time to get... You know, you could get a layup and foul, but at that point, the game is pretty much over. They desperately needed a three-point shot. Uh, Steve Menash somehow manages to get himself open in the corner. He's given the ball. He shoots a three-pointer, but he misses. He misses. Somehow, miraculously, uh, Sean Marion manages to out-jump Lamar Oden, and he comes down with the rebound. There's about 10 seconds left to go at this point. He finds a Tim Thomas who is open at the top of the key. Kwame Brown comes sprinting at Thomas. Thomas, with nine seconds left to go and the season on the line, has to hit this three-pointer. Now, if you haven't seen this, I would recommend going and looking up the end of Game 6 on YouTube because I can't really do justice in words to, to how cold this three-pointer was. Tim Thomas receives the ball at the top of the key, dribbles once to pump fake Kwame Brown, who's running to close him out and fakes him out of his shoes. Kwame Brown goes flying by and Tim Thomas just raises up and hits that three-pointer like it's nothing, just cold as ice. So he saves the season and the relief is just palpable. You can see like an Amari Stoudemire who's 
you know, in in his suit at this point because he he was injured, just jumping up and down, celebrating, pumping his fist. The game goes into overtime. The Suns win overtime and go on to comfortably take Game 7 in Phoenix. Sadly, despite a dramatic playoff run where the Suns would again win another seven-game series uh, against the LA Clippers, actually, in the next round, Phoenix would go on to fall short once again, losing in the Western Conference Finals to uh, Nash's former teammate, Dirk Nowitzki and the Daleks Mavericks. Fast forward to 2007 and the Suns would continue their run of excellence, this time winning 61 games and once again sporting the best offense in the entire league. Come playoff time, the Suns were rolling and the playoff picture had started to open up because the Dallas Mavericks, who were the best team in the league, they'd been embarrassed by Baron Davis and the Golden State Warriors in the first round. So if there was a year to gun for a championship trophy, this was it. This was the Suns' moment. The path to the NBA Finals had opened up and all Steve Nash and co had to do was reach out and grab this opportunity. So let's take a trip to the AT&T Center in San Antonio, Texas. It's the 14th of May 2007 and the Suns are playing against uh, the San Antonio Spurs in game four of the second round. The score is 100 to 97 and we're at the end of the fourth quarter with 20 seconds to go. Steve Nash, who at that point had played an amazing series and had been playing out of his mind. Not only had he been playing really well, but he'd been battered and bruised at that point in game two. It was either game two or game three. He had played through a broken nose. Um, you know, this guy, tough as nails, had just had just been playing extremely well at this point. Nash has the ball, 20 seconds left to go, uh, dribbles up the floor. The Spurs need to foul Phoenix because they're up at this point. Robert Ory comes over and in frustration, elbows Steve Nash as he's running and sends Nash crashing into the scorer's table. Naturally, the rest of the team takes exception to this really dirty foul and a scrum ensues in the middle of the court. On the Phoenix bench, both Boris Diaw and Amare Stoudemire get up and start to walk towards Nash and Ori. Now, the rule at this point was that if a player who is on the bench leaves the bench during an altercation, it's an automatic suspension. You, you miss a game. So the, the NBA took a rules are rules approach, despite, you know, when you watch the broadcast footage, they both start to walk towards the, the incident, but the coaches and the staff quickly kind of push them back towards the bench. They might have taken, you know, a good five or six steps towards what was happening. But, you know, the NBA took a rules are rules approach and the Suns lost both Boris Diaw and Amare Stoudemire, two of their key players for game five. The Suns would go on to lose that game and the series to the San Antonio Spurs for the third time that decade. Now, at this point, the thing about basketball, and to be honest, all sport in general, really, is that the powers that be, the owners and the fans, they want results and they want results quickly. The Suns had proven that they had enough talent to win it all. The fact that they'd been torching teams in the regular season proved this. But for three years in a row now, 
They'd fallen short of even making the NBA finals. You know, and, and the fact that each time they'd, you know, lost to a team that either went on to the finals or went on to win it all, that doesn't matter. The fact is, the more you fail to meet expectations, the louder your critics' voices grow. And in the 2007 offseason, those voices were deafening. The Suns aren't big enough to win. They don't play enough defense. Their style isn't suited to the playoffs. There's no one on the team that can guard Tim Duncan. On and on and on. The stream of criticism can be difficult for even the most obstinate, hard-minded managers to ignore. And so that season, general manager Steve Kerr, yes, that same Steve Kerr, pulled the trigger on a trade that would send longtime Phoenix veteran and all-star wing Sean Marion to the Miami Heat in return for a 36-year-old Shaquille O'Neal. Now, even at the time, this was a move that raised a lot of eyebrows and not least because Shaq was on the back end of his career. He had been prone to injury at that point and he had the unfortunate habit of turning up to training camps out of shape. Despite this, the Suns still had a measure of its success in 2008, winning 55 games, but they just weren't the same team. Shaq just didn't have the engine or the stamina to run at the pace that the Suns were used to playing at. And he would end up clogging the paint for uh, Amari Stoudemire, who just wasn't able to operate in the same way. And sure, Shaq added, you know, um, a bit of size to the team and he added a little bit of shot blocking as well. But the Suns had lost their identity by making this move. And you know what the massive irony in all of this is? The main reason that Kerr went and got Shaq in the first place was because they felt they needed to, somebody to match up against Tim Duncan. Uh, the Spurs had eliminated the Suns three times at this point. Um, so they thought, let's go out and get Shaquille O'Neal and we've got somebody to match up against Duncan. But they'd end up losing in five games in the first round against, guess who? The San Antonio Spurs. That was a hell of a series though. And in game one, Tim Duncan made a miracle three-point shot. And I don't actually know if that was maybe the second or third three-pointer that he'd made in his entire career, but he made it and the Suns lost game one and the entire series. The moral of this story is you just have to believe in your source. The Phoenix Suns had something good but they bowed to public perception and they broke up a system that had brought them years of consistent excellence. And when you fast forward to the end of 2008, there they are, the Phoenix Suns without their star defender in Sean Marion, and they're stuck with an aging, out of shape, really expensive Shaquille O'Neal, and everybody's scratching their heads on wondering what the hell happened to this team. So D'Antoni would go on to leave the team in the off-season and things were never quite the same after that. The Suns did manage to pull off one more miracle postseason run in 2010 under Alvin Gentry, where Nash and Co. would finally exercise their demons and sweep the San Antonio Spurs in the second round. However, they would go on to lose to the LA Lakers in the Western Conference Finals who went on to beat Boston in the NBA Finals in a nail-biting seven-game series. So that was it. 
That was the end of the seven seconds or less era of basketball. That was uh, it. Amari Stoudemire would go on to sign with the New York Licks in a crazy free agency year. Remember, that was the year that um, LeBron James made the decision and decided to take his talents to South Beach. Uh, Steve Nash would leave a couple of years later and find himself at the center of a really horrible Kobe Dwight Howard Lakers experiment that ended badly for everybody involved. And Mike D'Antoni would find himself in Houston not too long after. With the emergence of James Harden as a world-beating scorer, D'Antoni would take his uh, the system that he'd pioneered in Phoenix and turn it up to 11, unleashing James Harden as the best offensive player in the world. Still, even if things didn't work out in the end, those Phoenix Suns were some of the most entertaining teams to watch in the entire decade. You know, watching Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire make mincemeat of the entire league is one of the reasons that I got into basketball in the first place. And arguably, you know, that adrenaline-fueled, high-octane style of play, which D'Antoni set up, that was the precursor to the Golden State Warriors dynasty. And look, you know, that Phoenix Suns team had a general manager, Steve Kerr, who went on to coach the Golden State Warriors to the best regular season record in, in league history. So many teams in today's game play like a really fast, up-and-down style of play. When I was researching and, and sort of reading material for this episode, I found out that the 2005 Suns team, they led the NBA in pace, you know, number of possessions per game. They were number one in 2005. If that same team played in today's NBA, last season they would have been ranked 22nd. So the influence of D'Antoni's style of play on the league is absolutely undeniable. So even though the Phoenix Suns couldn't win at all, those teams absolutely made their mark on basketball and they made their mark on me personally. So thank you for following me on this journey, this exploration uh, through the seven seconds or less era. Don't forget that you can follow me on both Twitter and Instagram using the handle Half Court Hustle. Until next time, see you later. Oh.